Hey everybody, we had a stellar presentation by Jeremy and McGee on pulmonary embolism, uh, the diagnosis of it in our emergency department. Not surprisingly, it had a whole bunch of great evidence-based medicine in it. It's an excellent summary, uh, includes the latest ASAP policy guidelines from May of 2018, um, and really does summarize what we ought to be doing in the ED. Uh, it's a cool lecture, it's got five points, and we're going to do it in five minutes. <laughs> Point number one is to recognize that equipoise occurs in testing for PE, and that's a very Jeremy word, right? Equipoise really means you're pulled in two ways. You're balancing forces going one direction versus the other. You want to test for PE, but you also don't want to hurt anybody by over-testing. You want to make sure that the test is actually going to help you before you order it. And in the case of PE, if your pre-test probability is less than 1.8%, Testing for it probably isn't going to help you. And more importantly, testing for it willy-nilly will actually hurt patients. And you're like, wait, wait, what? Well, how, am I, how am I hurting patients? I'm, I'm just making sure by sending that D-dimer. Maybe the testing would miss somebody. Maybe my gestalt is wrong. I... Well, hold on just a second. We know from many many trials, most of which were actually used to create that ASAP clinical policy, that a patient that is low risk by Wells criteria alone, they've got somewhere below a 6% chance of actually having PE. And those were the numbers at the time at which Jeff Klein developed the PERC rule. And if you apply the PERC rule correctly to those patients that are very low risk, by the Wells criteria, zero or one, or low by the Geneva score, um, that patient, if all that is negative, their chances of having a PE are down to 1.8 or 1.9%. And this stays the same even after they are PERC positive and you've sent the D-dimer. So 1.8% risk after completing the pathway, stick with me just for a second here. Uh, and we'll get through the math, and you'll see how this hurts patients. So if you could know, let's say magically at a magic wand, if you could know that the patient had below a 1.8% chance of having a PE before you started all the testing, and then you completed it, right, you would end up with a negative test, and you would know that the patient has a 1.8% chance of still having a PE, right? It wouldn't help you at all. In this theoretical patient, right, you wouldn't miss any less PEs. Before you did anything at all, you had a 1.8% chance of missing the PE. And after you did all the testing, you still had a 1.8% chance of missing the PE. Every day, you're still missing the same amount of PE. And that's the crux of it, really. The testing can't get you below a certain percentage, 1.8 or 1.9%. But go back to reality now, right? We don't actually have a magic wand, right? There's no way of knowing whether the patient in front of you has very, very, very low, less than 1.8% chance pretest probability. But we do know with 100% certainty that if you put every patient you see down this pathway, you will include some that are below that testing threshold, right? If every single patient that comes into the ED gets PE workup, you will include some that shouldn't have been included. And then you're really no better than a Google search. John said it in his lecture a couple of times, guys, that not every patient 
with risk factors needs to be tested, right? And not every patient with signs and symptoms needs to be tested, right? You're going to have to decide who needs to be tested, and the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism needs to come up somewhat organically as you're performing your H&P and your physical exam. Um, you are going to have to get comfortable with making those decisions with really being a doctor uh, and knowing that you're going to miss PE, hopefully with a 1.8% risk. Not only can you get no better than 1.8% by following the pathway, uh, the opposite is really scary. If you perform testing on everybody, uh, you're going to perform a lot of CTAs on patients that didn't need it. The basal rate of breast cancer in America is one in eight women. This gets a lot worse with CTAs being performed when they shouldn't be. The thyroid is right there. It is also exquisitely sensitive to radiation. We don't need to be causing thyroid cancer. Acting like this, acting without equipoise, without being a doctor, will harm patients. Point number two is a little bit of a recapitulation. Know when to use the PERC rule. Remember, it was developed on patients that were already low risk by Wells. So Wells score zero or one or low risk by Geneva. Those are the patients that were included in the PERC trials and the PERC studies, and that's how you've got to apply that test. Don't apply the PERC score before knowing the Wells score, because if you do that, you could very well apply the PERC rule to a high risk patient and that would not lower the post-test probability down low enough to exclude pulmonary embolism. You've got to choose the right patients. Point three is know when to use the D-dimer. Right? This comes in one of two situations. Either the patient is low risk by wells, but you can't apply the PERC rule, they're PERC positive for some reason, then a D-dimer will safely exclude them, getting them down below 1.8%. Or you can use the D-dimer in the moderate risk patients by Wells or Geneva, right? The moderate risk ones were the ones you weren't allowed to apply PERC on because they weren't the ones included in that study. D-dimers are not used on the high risk patients, again, because that test, when it's negative, doesn't change the post-test probability down low enough. Hand in hand with that statement is point number four. Go ahead, and if your Wells score is high, uh, or your Geneva score is high, go right to imaging. D-dimer, PERC rule, they don't apply here. CTA or VQ is the next step. The last point we're going to make is about the age-adjusted D-dimer. First, you've got to know that there are two tests out there. Uh, the one our hospital uses and the one other hospitals use. Our hospital reports the results of the D-dimer test in DDUs, or D-dimer units. This test turns positive when you get about 250 or greater. The other test that's out there is reported in fibrin equivalent units, or FEUs. This is the one you'll see in research that turns positive when it gets above 500. Previously, there was some argument about whether we could use our test uh, because all the studies were done on the other D-dimer test. However, the ASEP clinical policy from May of 2018, six months ago, actually included more recent research that looked at both D-dimer assays. And, per this policy, you surely can use our D-dimer in an age-adjusted fashion. The way that you do it is that for patients over the age of 50, 
you take their age and multiply that by 5, and that will give you the new positive threshold. So if you've got a 60-year-old patient, by the old way, they were going to turn positive if it got above 250. Now, however, 60 times 5 gives you 300. And so now they're not truly positive unless their dimer breaks 300. Now, there isn't a institutional policy on this yet, although things are probably in the works. Um, so feel free to practice medicine this way if you feel comfortable following the ASEP guidelines. Uh, feel free to wait if you want to wait for a hospital policy on this. So that's a lot. We went over five minutes, but those are the five points. As always, take a listen to this a couple of times. Email me, shoot me some questions, call me, or stop by the office. Happy to talk about any of it.